Bob Wells once said, Look around. There are no enemies here. Just good old-fashioned rivalry. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about two-player board games. Two-player games, in this context, is specifically games that are intended to be two players. We will be discussing maybe one or two games that has a mode with more than two players. But for the most part, these are all two-player exclusive games. Games where they're only designed to be played with two players playing against or in concert with each other. So why are we talking about two-player games? Two players are really the minimum number of people to have a competitive experience. There are solo games, but mostly those are just meant to pass the time. Also, two-player games are inherently less random than three, four, and five-player games. Fewer variables to have to track. There's fewer players to have to consider the actions of. And when it comes down to it, any sort of interaction between exactly two people is going to be the maximum level of interpersonal intimacy you can possibly build. This is true in basically any context, but in the context of gaming, it means that you are getting a unique gaming experience that lets you understand the strategies, mindset, and thoughts of the one person that you are now playing a game with. And to me, that's very interesting, personal, and even a bit intimate. So, let's dive into our list of two-player games. The first game we want to talk about is Fog of Love. We've discussed Fog of Love before. It's a game where each player takes the role of one individual in a relationship, and then you play through a number of scenarios, be they dates, personal experiences, arguments, all sorts of things of that sort, with the intent of bringing the relationship to a satisfying and productive ending, be it because you separate and go your own ways, or because you eventually experience true love and live happily ever after. Now, Fog of Love is really only barely a board game. It is what we like to call a light role-playing game. Play down the scenarios, and then you discuss what your character would do in that. You think about what your character might uh, might do, what the character might want in this situation. You play down the card, Who was that I saw you with last night? And your partner plays, Oh, no, no, it, it was no one. It was nothing. That could lead to an argument further down the line, and it leads to an interesting discussion about why these two characters are in this relationship and what is going on. Finally, you might also have secrets that you keep from one another throughout the course of the relationship, and the game is by and large a balancing act of considering personal interests of the character that you're playing versus the happiness of the partner your character has found themselves sidled with. Between those two things, the goal is to reach that satisfying ending. And as, as we've said before, it's really only kind of barely a game. It's got some game elements that are pretty specific and gamey, but as a general rule, what's more interesting is how the interactions take place and the sort of light role-playing type story you can tell by experiencing a game of Fog of Love. It's pretty cool. 
Now, if you want to play a two-player role-playing game, I have been given an interesting little assortment of Call of Cthulhu adventures meant for just the keeper and one player. They're called Monophobia. They're really deep, they're interesting, they do delve into uh, the psyche and horror elements of Call of Cthulhu a little bit more than most Call of Cthulhu games. And that's really about it that I can say about it. If it sounds interesting to you, check it out. I'm reminded of back in the old Usenet days of the internet, there was some discussion on a bulletin board at one point about delving into the dungeon by yourself, uh, solo adventures where it's just a DM and a player. And the general consensus is that by and large, it's difficult because those scenarios don't allow for a lot of variety in the options you have available to you. And that's something that you always need to overcome with those situations. Anyway, that's just, that's, just kind of my aside on that uh the whole thing is that with role playing you usually have a balanced party and with only one player you are by definition not going to have a balanced party but with a call of cthulhu game it's a lot easier because the goal is primarily to experience a horror scenario more than to actually delve into a dungeon and be met with uproarious success so this is pretty much the ideal scenario for a solo adventure where it's only one player one dm the next section of games that we're going to talk about are card games. Now, we're not talking about games played with the standard 52-card deck. Uh, what, bridge deck, poker deck? What, what's that actually called? It's a French deck, actually. Um, the French designed the original four suits of playing cards that we use to this day and also codified the elements the one through ten and then jack king queen it's also based loosely on tarot and that's where a lot of that inspiration comes from same with the four suits between tarot and car anyway right so we're going to be calling that a uh poker deck poker deck so we're not going to be talking about any games with a poker deck poker deck why well why you probably already have a deck of poker cards laying around your house somewhere and you probably already know a handful of games that can be played with a poker deck on top of that you have an entire internet worth of information to find more games that can be played with a poker deck if you're interested in playing games with a poker deck the thing is, you don't really need us to review poker decks for you. It's it's a deck of cards. You're familiar with it. You know how it works. And if you want to play games with it, you can find those games to play with it. What we are going to discuss, however, are card games specifically intended to be played with two players. The other thing we're not going to talk about right now is we're not going to talk about Magic the Gathering. Really, for my money, Magic the Gathering is a hobby unto itself. While it's definitely under the tabletop umbrella, magic requires an amount of dedication that most board games do not. Yeah, dedication, ongoing purchases and experience, and constant vigilance lest the metagame change in some meaningful way when you're not looking, or even the rules. Magic the Gathering is its own hobby, and we appreciate that here at Save vs. Rant, but it also means that if we're going to talk about trading card games, and we will eventually, we will definitely rant about trading card games, but if we're going to talk about trading card games, we want to devote the whole thing to trading card games. So, no trading card games today. So the first game we are going to talk about is... Arkham Horror, the card game. Now, back in Season 1, we went on for an entire episode about our love of Arkham Horror, the board game. For my money, Arkham Horror, the card game, is actually probably a better game. It tells a more cohesive story. Your characters grow and evolve over time. You are making better decisions that impact the game rather than just saying, eh, I want to go here. Let's see what's at this location. 
A big part of what makes that interesting is, of course, again, that role-playing light experience. We've talked about light role-playing games before, and we will talk about them again. But a big part of what makes light role-playing games great is they give us that sense of achievement and continuity with what we're doing. You know, when you are playing, for instance, Joe Diamond, and Joe Diamond gets more equipment, better equipped, better prepared to take what's going ahead, and you're going into the next scenario with a more experienced Joe Diamond who has already a kind of a understanding about the supernatural horrors underlying the world of Arkham, it gives you that sense of accomplishment and that sense of fulfillment that you're looking for from a role-playing game. So it gives you a kind of a double dip there, and I'm a big fan of role-playing light games for that reason. Now, technically, Arkham Horror the Card Game can be played with more than just two players. But, one, the base box only comes with enough cards for two people, and two, the game gets worse with more players. It can go up to three or four players, and it's not very fun at three or four players. The other thing about Arkham Horror the Card Game is that you are playing through a story. And so if you play through the three encounters in the base game, there's not really a lot of replayability there. But there is a ton of support for this game. It is a living card game produced by Fantasy Flight Games, and they have uh, put out so many uh, different... Uh, story expansion, so many different character expansions for this game that you will not run out of run out of things to do if this is the game for you. Next on our list, we wanted to talk about a subset of the card games, and that's the set collection game. Sort of a variant on the trick-taking game like Hearts or Euchre, if you're from the Midwest like us, but... Set collection games are games where the goal is to collect sets of things, as implied by the name of the game. The two set collection games we wanted to discuss specifically are Morels, which is a game by Brent Povis that we saw at Gen Con that caught my wife's eye because she and her family used to go hunting for Morels, and that's a pretty pivotal experience for youth. It's a game where you're going out and collecting mushrooms. The other game we were going to discuss is Jaipur. So let's go ahead and start with Morels. Morels does something that I think is really important in a two-player game, and that is give the players a constraint other than the other player that they have to work against. In Morels, all of the mushrooms are constantly growing and then going to rot. There's not time enough to pick all of the possible mushrooms, so you're selecting mushrooms not merely based on your expectations of what your opponent is going to do and therefore trying to simultaneously step on their toes without stepping on your own toes, but also you have to consider what's going to go to rot, what you're going to lose out on and you're not going to have access to again. So that gives you a constraint where you have to make your decisions based on what's available. Finally, you actually have to cook the mushrooms as part of the game because what good are mushrooms if you're not actually eating them? And the best way to cook mushrooms is to add butter or cider or something like that. So you're also collecting all the parts you need to prepare these mushrooms into gourmet delicacies that you can enjoy as the fruits of your labor. Altogether, that means that you're doing sort of a beautiful balancing act with trying to get what you need without your opponent taking it, get what you need without it going to rot, and get what you need without accidentally overstuffing yourself with stuff that you're not going to be able to end up using. Makes for a good game experience. Jaipur 
is a game where you are attempting to become the Maharaja's personal trader. You do this by going to the market and getting leather, spice, cloth, silver, gold, and diamonds, and gathering up large groups of them and then selling them off for giant bonuses. You're also trying to collect camels, but that's mostly so that way you can get more of the cards that you need. At the end of the game, camels really aren't worth anything unless you have the largest herd of camels. Which is what we all know and understand about camels, is there's no point in having camels if you don't have the most camels. I mean, ask Australia and Saudi Arabia. This pointless fact, Australia actually exports camels to Saudi Arabia because not only do they have massive deserts that are great for camel cultivation... Is that, a, is that actually a term, camel cultivation? Uh, sure, okay. We're cultivating camels. Um, not only do they have these massive deserts that are fantastic for cultivating camels, but they've got all this empty space to do it, and they've got people who actually want to do it. And apparently that's all of those things are apparently an issue in Saudi Arabia, but they still want tons of camels there. So that's just how the camel market works. Just like in Jaipur, where you want to have the most camels. So in Jaipur, you're collecting these sets of cards, and you're trying to collect a large enough set in your hand to sell off to get large bonuses. Sometimes the bonuses are worth more points than the amount of points you get for selling off the set. And this game is brightly colored, easy to learn, and it plays really, really quickly. The actual way that you play it is you play best two out of three. And that's a really great way to play a two-player game, is to have them be quick and easy. No one really likes playing the games that last for hours and hours and hours. Sitting there thinking, going, huh, what am I going to do? Uh, both Jaipur and Morels say on the box that they last for 30 minutes, and that's a great amount of time for a two-player game. I think Morels can actually be played pretty much in half that time if you actually know what you're doing. I feel like the first time I played Morels, it took about 30 minutes, and then after that it was actually a little faster. But also, speaking of two-player games where you just play and play and it takes forever and you just keep going, the next type of game we're going to talk about are abstract games, specifically chess variants. We're not going to talk about chess today. Chess does fall under that list of two-player games that are exclusively two-player, and it would it's exactly the sort of thing we're talking about. But I guarantee you that if you do a quick search on whatever podcasting app you're using right now, you can find dozens, possibly hundreds of podcasts that are just about chess. And we don't need to add our two bits to people who literally dedicate their entire lives to chess. We'll never achieve that level of chess mastery, and we're not interested in it. So, really, we're just going to talk about some chess variants right now. Also, for my money, chess isn't a fun game. There's never been a time I've been playing chess going, Ah, yes, my clever play and intricate work has led to a rewarding experience and a fun time for me and my opponent. Most of the time I'm sitting there going, Huh, well, I've seen how this game plays, so I'm going to play this opening that I've seen 20 times before. I'm going to play a middle game where I'm trying to work toward an end game. And then I'm going to play an end game that's already been solved. Yeah, that's the goal of chess. Move the game into an end game that's already been solved so you can just declare that you won. So uh, what we're going to actually discuss today is the Duke and Onitama. Uh, Onitama is a game where you have a group of martial artists and their master trying to do an exhibition to prove that their martial arts training is superior. 
The way the game works is there's a constrained list of moves. You can move any of your characters, but you can only use the moves you have available to you right now. When you use those moves, you swap them for a neutral set of moves that's available so that you can't use the same moves twice in a row and you and your opponent are constantly cycling through the same sets of moves. It's an interesting game experience because the only randomness in the game is what's introduced at the very beginning. When those very first moves come out, that is when the game's random elements have been fully established. And from then on, it's a game of perfect information where every player has access to the same available resources. And you're just working off of who can come up with a way to corner their opponent better which I think is a really interesting way of playing a game and makes for a good game experience. It's also a pretty quick play. I can play through a game of Onitama in 5-10 minutes. It's pretty phenomenal. The Duke is a chess variant where instead of your entire army being present on the board at the beginning, you only have three pieces, your Duke and two of his guards. And as the game progresses on, you summon more and more pieces to the board. Of course, the goal of the duke is to capture your opponent's duke, much like how in chess the goal of chess is to capture your opponent's king. But the duke is chaotic because you're drawing all of these pieces randomly out of a bag, and if you add expansions, you're, you're adding in uh, variants to the pieces that are already in the bag. Also, when you activate a piece, you flip it over to its other side, and that changes the moves that the piece has. It's a great amount of strategy along with a great amount of randomness. Also, like Onitama, the game can be played in 10 to 15 minutes. What I like about the Duke and Onitama specifically in this discussion is that they're kind of polar opposites and show different approaches to this. In Onitama, all the random elements are established at the very beginning of the game, and then from then on, the game is a straightforward you know, who can come up with the better strategy given these elements. The Duke is kind of the opposite, where at the beginning of the game, nothing is random, but everything from then on has some sort of random element being introduced, you know? Which pieces you're going to pull out from the bag determines your entire strategy, but you don't even know what's going to come until you have a chance to actually pull it. That's what makes the Duke such an interesting game, and that's what makes Onitama such an interesting game. It's two different approaches to the same problem of wanting to have a random element in a game that is otherwise largely non-random and based on your ability to ascertain the strategy that's going to lead you to victory. Chess and chess variants are very much uh, Western games and very much Western-themed. I've often thought that Go is the Eastern version of chess, and we actually have a Go variant here called Tashkalar. In Tashkalar, you are playing the game of Tashkalar in the city of Tashkalar. I'm sorry, you're going to have to be more specific. Are you talking about the deathmatch form of Tashkalar or the high form of Tashkalar played in the arena of Tashkalar in the city of Tashkalar? Uh, I actually much prefer the high form of Tashkalar. Hoity-toity, aren't we? In the deathmatch version of the game... You're disrupting your opponent's forms and formations, which, of course, disrupts how you can play the game, but 
there's not really a lot of strategy to it. You just go, well, I know this will take out the most number of pieces I can, so that will probably be the most disruptive. In the high form of Tashkalar, you're attempting to go after goals that are set out in front of you. Each player sees the three goals and the goal that is on deck and are attempting to do those to get points. Well, well, I think you might be putting the Kalar in front of the Tosh here. You've said that it's a go variant, but we need to know what exactly that means. That means you're placing discs on a board, trying to establish certain patterns that give you an advantage based on the positioning of those discs versus what you're looking at when you're looking at your different cards that say what you can do. Now, in the base game, it comes with four decks of cards. Each of these decks gives you different things that you are attempting to form, different patterns, and then you play the uh, cards from your hand to summon a wild griffin, or summon an ogre, or summon a werewolf. Wow, so those things like come onto the field and just start tearing everything apart and like doing epic battles with each other? Well, they do for one move, and then they revert to just being these tiles again. Sorry, I like to poke the bear on that one. I know you don't like the aesthetics so much of them coming out as something awesome and then turning back into something normal. But I actually think actually think it's a kind of a neat visual, imagining them suddenly emerging from the battlefield, doing their thing, and then just hopping back down to be like normal dudes again. Tashkalar, of the games that we have, is the one I've played the most. I've played a lot of the Duke. I've played a bit of Jaipur, but Tashkalar, for some reason, has really uh, captured my imagination. It's not a perfect game, and sometimes it doesn't even feel like a great game, but it is a lot of fun, and when you're uh, playing against a well-matched opponent, the game can go back and forth and be some of the most fun you can have in a two-player game. And I think that that's kind of the difference between Eastern chess variants and Western chess variants is that Eastern chess variants feel to me more like an exercise in creativity. If I'm playing Go, you know, I, I'm trying to come up with some strategy my opponent's never seen before that's going to throw him off and give me the ability to slide into position. Whereas when I play chess, I want to revert to whatever is the most successful strategy at that time. And the thing that's most likely to give me success, which is usually the tried and true methodology. There's not a lot of room for direct immediate creativity. It's more about choosing which path you think is going to give you the best outcomes. And I feel like Go variants, at least for me, tend to give me more opportunity to, you know, figure out what I'm doing and experiment with new ideas. So we we did have another... Um, abstract game we wanted to talk about today, Hive, which is very aesthetically pleasing. I want to start out with that. Hive is the prettiest game that we have here. It is a game where each player has these cool hex pieces. They're nice and weighty. They feel kind of like dominoes. And on the top of them, they have bugs, these different bug symbols. And the whole goal of the game is to place down pieces and eventually surround your opponent's queen bee. Uh, each of the pieces has their own method of moving, and this is a nice, quick game, and oh my god, it is really just beautiful. And this is, the, the weight of these pieces is so nice. It's, it, it, they're weighty, and they, they're smooth, and they're, they're a pleasure to hold, they're a pleasure to look at, and I, 
I just want to play with these pieces. They have uh, two of the qualities that I like most in game pieces for more upscale design features like this, and that is that they have the heft and the clack. The clack is my favorite. Make them clack. Come on. I love the clack. In Hive, a big part of the game is not merely deciding what to put out and when, but when to add more to the board and when to just work with what you've already got. Because a big part of the game is choosing when to place different bugs on the board. Now, uh, the, one, the one thing that we can say about this game that's negative is that, of course, they use bugs as the theme of the game, which might turn off some players. I can definitely see some people not being down with putting a ugly spider tile down on the table. I think they're beautiful, and I think that they are really not merely aesthetically pleasing, but also visually distinct in a way that makes the game easy to play and fairly simple to memorize. One of the things I like about this is that it doesn't require a board. It just requires these tiles and a flat place to play. As you are playing the pieces, they will eventually form together into the playing area, the playing board, but you don't but it doesn't require a piece of cardboard to lay down to play this game on. Really a quite nice game. The last game that we have to talk about is Patchwork. Uwe Rosenberg, a wonderful designer, designed Patchwork as a great two-player game. And if I'm being honest, I think that Patchwork is probably the best of these games that we have here in front of us. Yes, even probably better than Fog of Love. In Patchwork, you're trying to design a quilt, and you have a number of patchwork tiles which are shaped geometrically in a grid-type formation. So they might, in some cases, resemble tetraminos from the game Tetris. In others, they might look like, you know, a very long T. You know, the different pieces just fit together in different ways. And this is kind of a classic, mostly with single-player games, actually. I see a lot of puzzle games that are designed around, you know, try to make this image with these pieces without overlapping them, you know? That's kind of the classic, like, that's kind of the classic puzzle as far as geometric shapes are concerned. There's also a lot of tile sliding puzzles that this reminds me of, where you have all these tiles and you have to move them into a different formation by sliding them. In this case, you just put the tile down and because you're sewing a quilt, once it's there, it's there. You have to work with what you've got and what you've created for yourself. And maybe you'll, you know, box yourself in or put yourself in a bad position. But in general, it's a game of resource management and tile placement. So kind of almost an inventory management game. The game also features an interesting time mechanic. It's not a game where it just alternates back and forth. One player, the next player, one player, the next player. Some of the pieces require more time to place into the quilt and therefore might take a good chunk of your game experience. Whereas when John and I played, I went for a, a strategy of putting in a bunch of tiles really early on and getting a bunch of turns right in a row. It didn't end up uh, winning me the game because... John ended up placing a bunch of tiles that had buttons on them, which are the currency of the game. And at the end, having more bu buttons wins you the game. So the big thing about it is that in games like this, not only are you competing for 
the different tiles that are available, but you also have to balance not only the amount of time versus the amount of buttons things cost, but also the high quality tiles, which are expensive, versus the low quality tiles, which are cheap but cover a lot of your board. Since you want to have a lot of your board covered at the end of the game, but you also want to have a lot of buttons, turns into a constant cost-benefit analysis where you find yourself continually evaluating whether it's good to grab something right now that gives you an immediate benefit or something later that doesn't. And I think that what we're trying to say today is that there are a lot of elements that make for good two-player games. And We've talked about, throughout all of these, the elements that make for good two-player games. I feel like Patchwork has pretty much all of them. Not only do you lose resources and have to consider what resources are going to be available later versus what resources are available right now, and not only are you competing with the other player for those resources, but each of those resources has a different value and different costs associated with it. And then even if you know what resource you want, and even if it's available to you, and even if it's within the values that you can actually purchase, it might still not be the optimal choice. You might have pinned yourself to something that isn't going to win you the game. So there's a lot of opportunity for different ways of playing and different philosophies of approaching the game. And that is what you're looking for in a two-player game, is something that's fairly simple to pick up, fairly easy to play, good to explain, and works in an intuitive manner that lets you play the game, but gives you a lot of opportunity for different philosophies of play. Well, I don't know much about philosophy, but I know that two-player games are really the best way to give yourself a mathematical edge. I mean, in a four-player board game, you have a statistical 25% chance of winning. You might be able to edge that out if you're a really good player, but... 25% chance. In a two-player game, you've upped that to a 50% chance of winning. Oh yeah, mathematics, baby. All right, so I think that wraps up our discussion of two-player games. Uh, what did we have planned for the next episode? The next episode, we're going to be talking about metagaming. The game beyond the game. Or the game within the game, or the game beneath the game, or the game above the game, depending on how you want to look at it. So we're going to be talking about what metagaming is, how to do it successfully in games that require metagaming, and how not to have it ruin games where you're not supposed to metagame. All right, so once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. In the game of chess, you can never let your adversary see your pieces. King me. Zap Brannigan. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com, or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.